With that said, we're going to jump into the scriptures. We've been working through a series entitled Unlikely Church, and it's, it's really just a study of the, the letter, the first of two letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to one of the ancient churches, one of the earliest churches that was started in the ancient Greek city of Corinth. And in the New Testament, the book is simply entitled First or One Corinthians. Um, we've been kind of going bit by bit, chapter by chapter, and this Sunday we're up to part nine, which is the latter half of chapter seven. And I've entitled this installment, Just As You Are, The Nature of Spiritual Change. So if you have a Bible, please get it open, or if you have some sort of electronic device that you can read along with, that'd be great. And if you're like, oh, I didn't bring a Bible we have Bibles for you. You're very welcome to grab one in the aisles here and use those to read along, to study, to take notes. Oh, and by the way, we're going we're gonna to get some work done this morning. This is going to be slightly um, systematic. So if you're into theology and you're just like, look, more Bible, please, this Sunday is for you. Um, so this would be a good Sunday to actually take notes because we're going to be working through quite a few different scriptural references so instead of just frantically flipping pages, you might want to just jot down some of those references and then go back to them to study the scriptures for yourself uh, later on. Okay, here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 17 and uh, go up through 24, I believe. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. And to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So far, Paul, in this letter, this very personal um, letter to the Corinthians, Paul, he's laid a foundation. He's, he's taken his time to redirect the attention and the thinking of the Corinthian church to, to really what's most important. The Corinthians, if you've been tracking with us during this series, you will know the Corinthians wrote a letter to Paul asking him about some specific matters of faith and morality and, and whatnot. This is Paul's response to that letter. Now, the Corinthians asked about a bunch of different things, and Paul has only just begun, we're in chapter 7 now, to actually respond to some of those specific things. He took the first six five or six chapters to say, look, let's, let's make sure we get the foundation right first. What I don't want to do, Paul writes, is simply give you some tips on how to become more religious or moral 
people. Okay? What you have signed up to, if in fact you are the church of Jesus in Corinth, is to follow him. It's to get to know him, to be known by him, and to be transformed by him. Eventually, in chapter 7, Paul, he talks about relationships. Apparently, one of the first questions that the Corinthians had had to do with marriage and and sex and sexuality and and, and how are we meant to do marriage and what if I'm not married but I want to get married? What if I am married and and I'd really like to not be married anymore? And Paul talks about some of those things. And he says, here's the conclusion. Here's the point, and this is the response, what we've just read. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which you have been called. When I became a Christian, God got a hold of me and significantly changed my life. Have you, have you heard of this, this kind of thing happening? Yeah, this is what, what we call like a radical conversion experience. I realize it does not happen this way for everyone, but for me, I was living one way, Jesus quite unexpectedly just came bombarding into my life. I felt this overwhelming sensation of what what I would call now a conviction of sin. I'm sure I had no words for it at the time. Maybe I would have just said I, I was feeling really, really bad. But I felt convicted. Like, no, this, this is not what I have been given life for. This is not what God has given me my body for. I felt this, like, conviction. And so I decided, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to surrender my life, my will, my future, my eternity to Jesus. And I, I don't even know exactly what that means, but I'm, that's just what I need to do. And I did. And, and God changed everything. He changed the way I saw myself. He changed the way I, I, I began to interact with other people, in particular women. He changed my habits. Things that I had loved but hated, if you follow me, like most habits. Things that I absolutely loved and centered my life around and yet sort of hated at the same time and couldn't manage to like break away from. God set me free like that. It was like chains were broken in my soul. And I became this different person. We say, we actually sung this morning that we come to God just as we are. Just as we are. Fears, worries, hurt, pain, questions, pride, sin, etc. We surrender to him and then he begins to transform us. And Paul says, this is the Christian life. This is, I want you to live the life in which you have been called. And it's not so much about like the, the, uh, the superficial, the direct, the immediate uh, circumstances or your life situation stuff. You may be married, you may be single, maybe you, know, you may have a job, you may be homeless, you may, there may be a lot of, but that's not really the point. God has called you to live a particular way which may involve changing all of that or maybe not. But I want you to live the life to which you have been called. Elsewhere, he refers to it as the upward call of God. Jesus himself referred to it as the abundant life, eternal life that is getting to know God. So 
here's my question for us. Two, two questions, actually. Number one, what exactly is that life? Can we go back one? Um, yeah. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, which God has called him or her, obviously. What is this life? What is the Christian life? And secondly, how? If in fact you are like serious about living the life that Jesus has promised us, how? How do we, how do we actually do this? Um, it's been a while since Jesus was physically walking the earth. Uh, last time I checked, God was still invisible and mostly inaudible. How do we live this life that Paul's referring to here? How does this happen? Well, Paul answers the question. He says in verse 18, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks. Or conversely, if you're not circumcised, uh, you don't need to get circumcised. All you need to do is obey the commandments of God. Thank you, Paul. That just, that just makes perfect sense. That explains everything. So if you were, if you were worried that if becoming a Christian, if experiencing the abundant life might require you to get circumcised, Paul's saying, hey, don't worry about it. You don't have to get circumcised. Of course, the ladies are thinking, what is, how does this mean anything to me? Or conversely, if you've been circumcised and you're worried that you're going to have to have somehow have a reverse procedure done, Paul's saying, don't worry about it. You don't have to do that. Apparently, that's an actual thing. All I need you to do, I mean, this is, this, I, mean, I know it's kind of funny to our ears, but this is exactly what he's saying. It's actually really not helpful, helpful in any way whatsoever. Um, maybe 2,000 years ago, we would have been like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Great, wonderful. All I need to do is obey the commandment of God, and it's not actually about altering like external things or, or circumstances. Okay, we need to unpack this a little bit. So, are you ready? We're going to go Old Testament, and we're going we're to go through several verses, and I'm going to attempt to help us connect dots. Um, let's, let's, let's talk about circumcision. Okay, Genesis 17. I actually have this one up here. Verses 10 to 13. God um, is, has already engaged a man named Abram. This was, this was a long, long time ago. Abram, or as, as we refer to him now as the pa- Abraham, the patriarch of our faith. God, God found this guy out in the middle of the desert. We have no background story. We don't know why God picked him. He just picked this guy, Abraham, some random, out in the middle of the desert. He met with him. He said, Abraham, I'm going to use you. I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to restore the world. I'm going to bless the, in, all of creation through you. He meets him a second time out in the desert. It's this really bizarre moment. And Abraham, he cuts up some, some animals. And, he, and, he, and God passes through. Not God, but this sort of like vision of this burning furnace passes through. It's super trippy. I think it's like Genesis 15. 
And, and God confirms this promise that he made to Abraham, this covenant that he formed with this, this guy out in the desert. Now, the third time God meets Abraham, this is Genesis 17, this is, this is, he affirms his covenant, the, pro, the promise that he made to Abraham, and this is what he says. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you, your family. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Okay, so this is the first time circumcision has, has appeared in Scripture. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign, it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations whether born in your house or bought with your money, remember that, or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. This is a commandment from God. And what is he saying here? Now, circumcision is, is, is as bizarre a thing as it is, this would have been a common practice, a common religious rite among ancient civilizations in the ancient Near East. Okay, it wasn't just something that God invented. Abraham would have understood that this, this was a meaningful act of surrender, of trust. But the main difference, this is what commentators say, the main difference between what's happening here and what would have been common practice in some of the other nations surrounding Abraham during that time, is that they would have, the men in other nations would have practiced circumcision much later on in life. Would have been around puberty or perhaps sort of like just before marriage. Not super helpful for the honeymoon. But God is saying, no, what I want you to do is on the eighth day, I want you to circumcise every male because what this is to symbolize is a rite of passage into family. This is a rite of passage in the family. This is the sign that you are now a member of my family. Abraham, your sons, your offspring, for generations thereafter, circumcision is a sign of family membership. That's what it is. 400 years later, we have Exodus through Leviticus describing how God's family members are to act. So God says, I'm, I'm establishing my covenant with you. I'm, I'm adopting you into my family. And all generations through you, all who are circumcised, all who receive the sign of family membership will be members of my family. Which begs the question, okay, what, what does that mean? What does that look like? How are God's kids supposed to act? So God, over a period of about 400 years, begins to describe in meticulous detail, this is what it looks like to be one of my sons or daughters in the ancient Near East. Okay, so a little bit of context there. Finally, we get to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 through 6. This will not be on the screen. Deuteronomy 6, 5 says... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. This is the summary of all the law. 
So all of the commandments that God gives his people say, you're in my family, this is how you're to act. You're my son, you're my daughter, this is what it looks like lived out in community in the world. This is how you, you resemble one of my sons or daughters. And he says, if you're gonna sum it all up, basically, love me. Love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And by the way, this is, this is exactly what Jesus quoted in all three of the synoptic gospels when Jesus is, is asked to give a summary of all of God's commandments, he says, this is it. It all hinges on this. Here's the point. Love. Love God and love your neighbors. You want to bear the family resemblance? Love like our Father loves. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require you, require of you, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. So now all of a sudden, we see God connecting these ideas. What begins to appear is the reality that this ancient rite of circumcision wasn't actually so much to do with this, this physical act that the eight-year-old male would under, undergo, but it has something to do with the heart. Jeremiah, verse 31, 33. Now, the, the prophets pick up on this, and they continue to reiterate what God's saying in his law. Jeremiah 31 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The prophet Ezekiel says the same thing. Chapter 11, verse 19. And I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Paul, picking up on this again, reiterates this in the New Testament. He writes to his, in his letter to the Romans, circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter of the law. So circumcision is a matter of the heart. And a circumcised heart is one that's been inscribed with the commandment of God. Which is to love. Which is to love God with all your heart and to love others as well. Not simply for show or in word or for religious appearances or pretense. No, a circumcised heart is one that loves fully, sacrificially, and sincerely, just as God loves. So what is the Christian life? This is our question. It's the life that's been transformed from the heart out. It's a life that's living out a new identity. It's 
of the becoming an adopted child of God. It's knowing and being fully known by God as Father. The Christian life is knowing that in Jesus Christ, you are a beloved child of God and acting accordingly. It's this transformational revelation that I'm God's child. If you have a child, this is, this is a bit of a mind-blowing revelation. Because I tell you, I love my kids in a way I simply cannot describe. I can recall to you the instant they came into the world and how it just, it just it fundamentally changed me from the inside out. I cried when I saw each one of my children come out of the womb into the world. Didn't know why, didn't get it. It, it was actually, birth is not a beautiful thing really. <laughs> just not but that moment that that revelation that this little person who I love with all of my heart has come to the world that's 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 transformational this is how God loves us in Jesus Christ I am a child of God I am loved the Christian life is Knowing that and acting accordingly. A circumcised heart it is, a, is a heart that has been filled with the love of God. It's a heart that's been inscribed with the commandment of God, which is to love him, to love like him. It's a heart that has received such a love that we might share it with others. That is the Christian life. You may, have, you may have heard that speech before. This is Christianity 101. Paul, Paul puts it as, don't worry about circumcision, just obey the commandment of God. How? How does one experience that kind of life? Now, this is the real question. Because I suspect that if you've been around church, um, any, any decent church, church, if I can... I might be so bold. You will have heard that before. That you, if you are a follower of Jesus, you should be experiencing the transformational love of God in Christ. There should be this like this growing revelation inside of you that I'm his child. That this is my identity. This is this is where I get my weight. This is my center. This is where my anchor lies. And so whatever else happens in life. Whether, you know, whatever my relational status is, however much money I have, or probably don't, all of that pales in comparison to the reality of who I am. God is my dad. I'm loved. I'm loved. I needn't fear the opinion of others. I'm free from that. I needn't worry about what I'm going to wear tomorrow. My kids do not ever, ever, ever worry about what they're going to wear tomorrow. It's hilarious. It's hilarious. Judah will leave the house with his sweatpants on inside out and backwards, pockets just flapping around. And even after I tell him, he's like, I don't care. 
Like, what? so what? Like, I have pants on. I'm warm. Like, I don't get it. Like, what is your hang-up? How do we experience that? This is the big question, guys. I mean, who wouldn't want to live life like that? Who wouldn't want to believe that that's real? How do we experience that? That's the question. Four things. I want to break this down a little bit. Fear, faith, hope, and love. Fear, faith, hope, and love. Let's go back to the garden. Genesis chapter 3. We often go back there. It's the story of, of God. It's, it's the story of us. It's, it's where we started, and it's kind of how, how we've gotten to where we're at now. Um, the world we live in is beautiful. It's, it's full of, of godness. Everywhere we look, we see this, this beauty, this, this creativity. We see justice. We see order. We see mercy. We see it's just, just everywhere, and yet it's all, it's all marred. I was going to say slightly. It's, it's more than slightly. It's all marred. It's broken. We're broken. And I'm sorry, you cannot deny that. You cannot deny that. Explain to me why so many people are suffering in this world. Explain to me where evil comes from. The world is broken. And Genesis tells that story. Tells the story of of our original parents, a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, living in this garden called Eden, There is no sin. There is no brokenness. There's no pain. There's no suffering. There's no injustice. There's only wholeness. There's only unity. There's only communion between the man and the woman themselves, creation itself, and their maker, their father, God. And then for some reason, I don't get it. I don't understand why. But the man and the woman are tempted to... Doubt the goodness of God. They're lied to, and they fall for it. Something happens. They rebel. They rebel, and beauty's broken. There's a rift in the universe, and a separation opens up between creation and creator. If you know the story, you know what happens next. It says that the man and the woman who were naked... (laughs) They realized their sweatpants were on backwards and inside out. That's what happened. They lost their innocence. And they realized they were naked and shame filled their hearts. What do we do when we're ashamed? We cover up, we hide. It's what they did, it's what we all do. So they hide from God. It says that in Genesis 3.10... Let me flip there. In Genesis 3, 10, God is looking for them, the man and the woman who are hiding, and he said, he says to them, where are you? And the man replies, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. You know, I'm no church historian. I've read a few books, though, so 
I'll make the statement. I think as, as a modern uh, people, modern church, we have a real problem dealing with the place of fear and shame within the Christian experience, within our lives. I want to argue that this is an appropriate response to sin. The man and the woman rebelled against God and they felt shame and so they hid themselves because they were afraid. Is this not an appropriate emotional response to sin in our lives? When I do something that I'm ashamed of, I tend to want to hide it. I'm afraid of what people might think if they find out. I'm afraid of the repercussions. As a Christian, I actually fear offending God. In fact, I think it's probably the only thing I fear in life. That's probably not actually true. But I do. I fear offending my father. It's, it's, it's the only thing I really fear. I could care less what you, what you people think about me. I wish that was true. <laughs> I actually care deeply. <laughs> but they were afraid. If we want to experience the life to which we have been called, if we want to experience what it feels like to, to live out the identity, child of God, and act accordingly. It begins with, with a, an awful realization that I have sinned and offended God. And the proper response to that reality is, is it's fear. And it's, it's to want to hide. Can I, can I tell you something? If you sinned this morning and it was very hard, to you, hard for you to come in this place because you felt like something in your soul needed to be cover up, covered up, I want to say, you have a very soft heart. You have a very soft heart. Your conscience is intact if you feel ashamed of your sin. It's not a bad thing. Now, some people, you kind of hear that, you're like, oh my gosh, like, that sounds like, dang, Simon, Simon was so like, about grace. Like, what, what's happening? Are we going to change the name of our church now? Like, what? Like we were talking about love and now you're talking about being shamed of sin. Yes, absolutely. This is the starting point. This is the starting point, that awful realization that my sin offends God. It damages my relationships and it causes me to want to cover up and hide. To be afraid and ashamed is the proper response of sin in our lives. But watch what happens next. Genesis 3.15 now, God, he sees right through it. Poor, poor Adam, poor Eve. They're standing in the garden. They've been found, and they've managed to sew little fig leaves, little loin claws over themselves to cover up. And as a father, I can just imagine the scene. I'm just like, oh, gosh, like trying really, really hard not to laugh. Because if you have kids, and, you know, like they're being naughty, and you're trying to discipline them, but they're just being hilarious. <laughs> like, it... I kind of feel like it maybe was that scene, like God is like, oh my gosh, they're so, this is so, so bad, but this is really hilarious. <laughs> like, what did, it, what did they actually think they're covering up? And so he comes to them, and he begins to, to, to woo them. He calls them, he says, where are you? Have you ever heard it said that, that God cannot dwell where sin is present? That's, that's really bad theology, 
Okay, sin was in the garden. It happened. It went down. God's response wasn't to erect a wall. It was to go seeking after his broken children. Where are you? Who lied to you? What have you done? And he woos them. And he says, now look, this is what's going to happen next. The one who lied to you, cursed. Cursed. Woman, let me, let me say this to you. He says in 315, he says to the woman, I will put enmity between you. I'm sorry, he's speaking to the serpent, excuse me. He's speaking to the serpent who lied to the man and the woman. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring, that word should ring a bell, and her offspring. Between your offspring and her offspring. God makes a promise. God makes a promise. You're ashamed. You're afraid. You're hiding. Mm. Like kids. That's healthy. But now I'm going to make a promise to you. I'm going to undo what's been done. I'm going to unmake the brokenness. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to deal with this serpent who lied to you. In fact, through you, another will come. He, the one who will crush the head of the serpent. God promises in Genesis 3.15 to send the one, that is Jesus, who will crush the head of God's enemy and ours, and he will rescue all of creation. He makes a promise. Now, at that point, the man and the woman have a choice to make. Will they trust God? Will they repent? That means will they conclude that they've, they've, They've sinned, they've made a terrible mistake, and they turn to God and say, I believe you. I believe you. I believe that this, this mistake is so big, so beyond our ability to simply sort out on our own. I believe you. And that's faith. God makes a promise, and we either respond in faith or not. By the way, faith is not the prerequisite to experiencing God's salvation. Uh, faith is more of a posture and attitude. Faith fulfills our repentance when we turn away from sin and to God. Faith fulfills our repentance. It's very careful to get that right because so oftentimes we can think of faith as something that I, I need to muster or something I need to kind of create or it's this sort of emotional thing that I need to... I need to, to do. That's not faith at all. We repent, and faith fulfills our repentance. Now, what comes next? Hope. Let me read to you. Uh, we'll come back to Genesis, but let me, let me read to you a passage out of Romans. Romans 5. Um, let's start in verse 2. Paul says, through Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Verse three, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings 
knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. What comes after faith? Hope. What comes after hope? Love. What's in between faith and hope? Suffering. Endurance. Character development. And then hope. God makes a promise. We either believe him, turn to him, trust in him, we go, we, go, we go for it on our own. If we choose to put our faith in God, if we choose to trust his ability to vanquish evil, to crush the head of the serpent and unmake all of the brokenness in the universe, that decision, that faith in him will be tested. This is how hope is born. Did Adam have hope that God would in fact fulfill the promise that he chose to believe. Did he? Well, we read in Genesis 3.15, if we go another five verses, the very last thing, sort of the concluding moment of that whole episode, it says that Adam named his wife. What did he name her? It's where my daughter gets her namesake. I named my daughter Evelyn which is a derivation of Eve. Eve is the Hebrew word that sounds like life. Did Adam have hope in God? Absolutely. He named his wife life. Death was now a reality. The universe had been broken. But God made a promise. Adam chose to believe Do we know that? Absolutely. He said, it's not over. In fact, I'm going to name the one who I could blame, who I did blame initially, I'm going to name her life. Because out of this family that God has created, new things are going to come forth, living things. Death is not going to have the final answer. And the man and the woman had hope. Did they suffer along the way? Heck yeah. It's the whole story of the Bible. God makes a promise. We believe that faith is tested. We suffer. Brokenness continues to be reality. Through it, we learn to endure. Through that, our character gets formed into Christ. And out of that, hope is born. Hope for what? Hope for the glory of God. What does that mean? What's the the ultimate point? Where did we start? I told you this was going to be a bit bit heavy this morning. Where did we start? What does it mean to be a Christian? Hmm? Yeah, love. It's to be adopted into the family of God, to be given the heart of a child, a heart that's full of God's love, and then to live accordingly, to act like God acts, to love like our Father loves How does that happen? We come to the awful terms of the reality of our sin. We choose to believe God's promise that he's going to restore us. We begin to walk that out one day at a time. Suffering, enduring, 
having God form our character and form more of Jesus in us. Out of that is born hope, hope in the glory of the Father. What is that? The glory of God. You know, when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, so they left um, through the east exit. They went east of Eden. If you read the prophets, they begin to talk about the glory of God filling the temple. Do you know which direction the glory of God comes from? The east. Am I getting my, which way is east? East. (laughs) It comes from the east. That's perfect. So the glory of God comes this way. Right towards our stage. And it says that the glory of the God enters through the east gate and fills the temple. What is the temple of the church? Where is our temple located? It's us. It's our bodies. It's our hearts. When the human heart is filled with the love of God, the spirit of God himself, that's the glory filling the temple of God. That's the fulfillment of God's promise. That's where our hope lies. That ultimately, as love is poured more and more and more into our hearts, as the temple is filled with greater and greater amounts of God's glory, love or fear is pressed out. Fear is pressed out. Eventually, love will be perfected. In fact, it's the only thing in the end that will remain. Faith, hope, and love. But most of all, love. And where did fear go? Where did shame go? Where did our propensity to hide and cover up go? It's all been pushed out. And that is the ultimate reality that we're hoping for. That as God loves, as God's love fills our hearts more and more and more. As my identity as a child, as your identity as a son or daughter of God is perfected and more fully formed, as you endure, as you continue to believe, as God forms your character to become more and more like Christ, as your heart begins to overflow with the love of the Father, all fear is pressed out. Then we can start living like my four-year-old again. We can all wear sweatpants backwards, inside out. I dare one of you to come to church next week wearing sweatpants backwards, inside out. I'll give you $5. (laughs) Only if we can take a picture. That's our destiny. That's our destiny. (laughs) Okay. Here we go. What is God's plan to change the world? It's to fill human hearts with his love, with himself, and then trust us to act accordingly. That's how God changes us. This is the nature of spiritual change. We come to him just as we are. God begins to fill our hearts. Can I invite the band to come forward, please? This is how he changes the world. We're going we're gonna to close in a song. You know, I've been listening to a podcast 
to do with the, the theology of the Reformation. This, this year is the, the sort of the 500th year of the Reformation. Any, any Lutherans out there? There you go. I love Luther. 500 years gone by, so there's all these podcasts out there of theologians talking about the significance of the Reformation. And one of the things that came out of the Refor- Reformation that I love is this reality that words just sort of fail. Words fail. I could, I could stand up here all morning preaching my heart out. And I suspect God might, might actually use one or two of my words, probably the ones that I quoted straight from his. But at the end of the day, what I'm trying so hard to, to tell you guys about, it, it's beyond words. It's beyond words. It's when we come before God and say, you know what, let me just take this fig leaf off. Okay, no more running, no more hiding. Here I am, God. I'm naked, I'm full of fear, I'm full of shame. I'm, I'm, I don't know what to do with myself. I'm convicted of my sin, or maybe the, the sin that, that has been committed against me. Here I am, and we come to God with all of that, with all of our anxiety, all of our doubt. And God says, I've got a promise for you. Will you believe? Will you trust me? And then hope is born. Hope is born. And love becomes a reality. That is beyond words. Can we stand together? Guys, I want us to receive the love of God in Christ. I want us to receive his love that he pours into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given to us. As we worship him, I dare you to raise your hands. I dare you to cry out. I dare you to just pour your guts out before our God and say, yes, Jesus. Yes, I want to be in your family. I want to bear the marks of a son or a daughter. Won't you you inscribe your love onto my heart? See what happens.